to be back at uh, St. Agnes. Um, I spoke here, I think, maybe two years ago. I can't actually remember now what the topic was, but it was on something hopefully interesting. Um, <laughs> I love the Twin Cities. I come back regularly. Obviously, I have many friends here, the American Chesterton Society, etc. I spoke for many years at the uh, Chesterton Conference, where it was held here every year. Um, so it's always a delight to come back, even this time of year, when it's very cold. Um, so thanks for coming. Seems we have a good crowd. And I'm very pleased this evening to be able to talk about Evelyn Moore. Uh, it's Evelyn, not Evelyn, by the way. Actually, it's Evelyn over here. You can say what you like, really. But in England, we call him Evelyn Moore, and I think Evelyn called himself Evelyn Moore. So I'm going to call him Evelyn Moore. Um, and what I'd like to do, however, before I speak, speak about Moore himself, and I'm very pleased to be able to do this, because I give talks, normally I give talks on the Catholic literary revival and I talk, talks on the ruler rings or the hobbit or on Shakespeare or my own conversion story I don't often have the chance to speak on Evelyn Moore it might be only second or third time ever so it's a great privilege for me and a great joy for me before I do that and especially as this is the first of the series I would actually quite like to give you a, an overview of the Catholic um, revival in England that was animated by all these converts you're going to be hearing about, or at least some of them you're going to be hearing about over the coming weeks. But I'd like to begin with Evening War on Conversion. That seems to be a good place to start here. So I think I've got it at the hand, otherwise I can probably remember it. But uh, here we are. He didn't say this about his own conversion, he said this about the conversion of another writer, uh, Edward Sackville West, who converted many years later. And in writing to, to him, he said, Conversion is like stepping across the chimney piece out of a looking glass world where everything is an absurd caricature into the real world God made. And then begins the delicious process of exploring it limitlessly. Now, how many people here are converts? Okay, a number. I hope that the converts amongst us will actually, that will resonate with them. Because once you've received into the Catholic Church, you realize that the world that you lived in prior to your conversion was indeed an absurd caricature. It was not reality. It was reality uh, warped by our own pride and prejudice, by our own relativism, by making ourselves the center of the cosmos, and sort of weird view of things that, that that brings to us. When we actually discover reality, which the Catholic Church is, we can discover a whole new world, which is real. War understands that, these converts understood that. So let me just, first of all, put war in his place, so to speak. The Catholic revival in England, which, uh, I, 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 because the English, unlike the Irish, are not all saints, we have to convert. <laughs> I, I, I enjoyed the introduction there, Father. Um, <laughs> but the English, of course, in many ways are very, at least the Catholic English, have one of the most heroic stories in the whole of Christendom. Because for a period of uh, 150 years, from the 1530s, until the 1680s, Catholic Englishmen were put to death just for being Catholic for 150 years. 
And then for a further 150 years, when the, when the execution's finished, it was still um, uh, illegal to be a Catholic. You had very limited rights. You couldn't vote. You had limited property rights. You were very much a second-class citizen in your own country. So for Catholic Englishmen, they went through that whole period. It was 300 years of persecution. And for those recusant families that came through that, I think, are amongst the greatest heroes in the history of Christendom. But nonetheless, after 300 years of persecution, we're talking about a few tens of thousands now around the country because it almost been wiped out. And you could probably, if you were a worldly person, think, well, Catholicism in England's finished. It can be consigned to history. It's over and done with. But of course, things don't work out that way. And we then have the Catholic revival. And it begins with the Romantic movement. I don't have time to talk about any of this tonight because I want to talk about evening war. But the Romantic movement uh, was a reaction against the cold scientism and rationalism of the Enlightenment. And it led to many things, uh, not, some of them not so good. But uh, the first generation of Romantic poets, Coleridge and Wordsworth, their work led to a flowering of neo-medievalism, a rediscovery of the beauty of the Middle Ages. And this manifested itself in England in three distinct movements, which manifest themselves in this, uh, this series of talks you'll be giving now, the Catholic Revival. First was the Gothic Revival. The Gothic revival was a rediscovery of Gothic architecture and the idea of the Gothic and you know, the, uh, everything pointing towards heaven. And the leader of that movement, Augustus Pugin, became a Catholic convert, the first of a trickle at that stage in the 1830s of converts to the Catholic faith. If you go to England, um, the most obvious example of Gothic architecture would be the Houses of Parliament, of the Neo-Gothic, of that Gothic revival. Um, but also many of the Catholic churches in 1829, after this 300 years of persecution, uh, it was legal again uh, for Catholics to build churches in England. Of course, all the previous ones have been stolen from us, um, but we could build new ones. And the, the first generation of these Catholic churches were, were, were the manifestation of this Gothic revival in architecture. A second manifestation of neo-medievalism were the pre-Raphaelites in art, the pre-Raphaelite brotherhood. And again, as the name suggests, pre-Raphael, to leapfrog over the whole period of the late Renaissance and get back to the early Renaissance and the medieval for a pure vision of art. And the third, which brings us right into this series, was the Oxford movement in the 1830s in Oxford. Surprise, surprise. And one of the leaders of that movement was John Henry Newman, who in 1845 would convert to Catholicism. Um, now, blessed John Henry Newman, of course, and quite rightly, I think the last talk seems appropriate for the <laughs> beatified one at the end, but, but the first shall be last, and the last shall be first, because really the conversion of Newman in 1845 was the beginning of the Catholic revival. Um, you can see that the Romantic period for the previous 45, 50 years was the gestation period, the neo-medievalism laying the foundations. But Newman's conversion changed things. All of a sudden, it was fashionable to be Catholic. Newman was seen as a genius, as being brilliant on all sorts of levels. If he could be a Catholic and be convinced rationally of Catholicism, then 
maybe we should too. And all of a sudden it became uh, de rigueur for the upper echelons of English society to become Catholic, a blue-blooded revolution. Um, uh, you know, the, 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 the whole idea of people poping, you know, that uh, Lord so-and-so has poked, don't you know? Really? Lady Dowager so-and-so poked last week. Everyone's poping these days. <laughs> and at the same time that was happening, we had the Irish famine. So that means, of course, millions of saints moved over to England. <laughs> and of course, so what we had, of course, we had this new if you like, upper echelon elite of Catholic converts and this new proletarian working class of Catholic Irishmen. And all of a sudden, there was a Catholic presence in England again. Just when everyone was um, uh, confidently predicting the demise of Catholicism, it was back. And that was the beginning of the Catholic revival. And then we have three distinct periods of the Catholic revival. I'm going to place war into this and we'll get into war. The first period is what I call the Newman period from Newman's conversion in 1845 to uh, Newman's death in 1890. Um, many wonderful converts in that period, different talk. Then you have uh, what I call the decadent interlude, from the death of John Henry Newman in 1890 to uh, the death of Oscar Wilde in 1900, 10 years later, we have the decadent interlude. The English decadence and the French decadence, these people who live very, very sinful lives, who nonetheless, through their sinful lives, realized exactly how horrific and hellish that way of life was and recoiled in horror into the arms of Mother Church. Uh, the Mary Magdalene period, if you like. So Oscar Wilde was received into the Catholic Church in 1900 which was the year in which G.K. Chesterton was first published. So the year from, from 1900, when Chesterton was first published, to 1936, when Chesterton died, is the period of what I call the, the Chester-Belloc period, the period of Chesterton and Belloc. That was, they were the two giants of this revival, and this was when it really was taking off tens of thousands of adult converts every year in England. And then when Chesterton died in 1936, the following year in 1937, The Hobbit is published. So the third period, if you include, if you we're forgetting about the Deccan Interlude now, the third major period is what I call the Inklings period, the Tolkien and Lewis period. From 1937, the publication of The Hobbit, to the death of Tolkien in 1973. Okay, so we have this absolutely wonderful Catholic revival that all of us should know much more about when there were countless tens of thousands of converts to the Catholic faith and many of them amongst the greatest writers in English language in that 150 year period. So um, again, I'm not going to talk about any of those at the moment because that's not the topic of this talk. So I'm going to talk about evening war now. So where does the evening war fit into that picture? Well there is actually, if you like, a subplot in the period of the Chester Belloc. Right, from 1900 to 1936, that middle period of the Catholic revival, there's a subplot. There's what I call the wasteland generation. Those that were born um, around the turn of the century, they were too young to fight in World War I, but nonetheless found themselves in a, a society at the end of World War I that was, if you like, shell-shocked and uh, cynical and war was part of that generation. It's called the Wasteland Generation because it really was epitomized by T.S. Eliot's poem, The Wasteland, published in 1922, which I would like to say more about 
but can't. <laughs> so let's go back a bit. We'll see about the influence of Eliot on war. But basically, T.S. Eliot, Evelyn Waugh, Graham Greene, these are the, the giant figures, if you like, of that subplot, that subtext within the Chester Belloc period, the Wasteland Generation. So Waugh was born in 1904. It was a, uh, an, uh, an Annus Mirabilis in many ways, a very special year, because same year, I think the same year, give or take a year anyway, as you see how much I've researched this talk. Um, George Orwell was born in that year, Malcolm Mugridge was born in that year, um, Graham Greene was born in that year. They're all based at the same age, all became great writers. Now, when Ward was a young man, not a young man, when Ward was a boy, when he was about 11 years old, he went off to visit relatives in the countryside, and they were Anglo-Catholics. Now, Anglo-Catholics, for those of you that might not know, in the, in the Church of England, thanks to the Oxford movement largely, so going back, see why I'm contextualising all this now so we can see how everything fits. Uh, in the 1830s with the Oxford movement, there was a movement in the Anglican Church that said that we are not Protestants, we are part of the Catholic Church. Like the Greek Orthodox and the Russian Orthodox and the Roman Catholics, we are Anglo-Catholics, okay? Um, for what it's worth, theologically they were talking nonsense, but that's, again, another issue. But they certainly believed they were Catholics. Um, it's, when, it's when Newman realized through a study of history that they weren't, that he became a convert to Catholicism. But War had a relative, an aunt, who was an Anglo-Catholic, and he used to go out and he used to serve on the altar. And he fell in, fell in love with the ritual of the, uh, the Anglo-Catholic Mass as an altar server. So it's interesting here, because I used to think of War years ago as a, as a convert from agnosticism, or a convert from atheism. In actual fact, he's actually a convert from agnosticism and from atheism, but also from Anglo-Catholicism. And also, we could see, if we want to see parallels, um, a convert from um, a sort of modernist version of, of Catholicism. There might be lessons we can learn from his own experience here. So he's an altar server for many years. He was very somewhat supercilious about it. Ward was always somewhat supercilious. Um, see, Ward was not an Irishman, so therefore not a saint. <laughs> I'm running with this, as you probably gathered. <laughs> um, but he, for instance, he, 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 he sort of said rather priggishly, bear in mind he's about 11 years old, he's a boy rather priggishly that he didn't like this particular Anglo-Catholic church that he went to because he was the only one that crossed himself and he was the only one that knelt at the incarnatus in the creed. So this, this background in war is important because it's there. Okay, it's there. Not like me, for instance, with my, my own background, no concept of ritual, no concept of mass, no concept of serving the altar. It's there, it's part of his makeup. But then he went to Lansing College. More parallels here. Lansing College is an English public school. Now, an English public school is the opposite to an American public school. An American public school is a state-run school. An English public school is a private school. The poshest schools in England are the public schools. Okay? Eton is probably the poshest, Harrow, etc. 
rugby. But Lansing is also another one of these very, very posh uh, private schools that they call public schools. And it was a fruit of the Oxford movement. It was founded in the 1830s to give a good, solid Anglo-Catholic education to the gentry, to the wealthy, the blue-blooded aristocrats, so we could have a revitalized Anglo-Catholic England. Lansing Chapel, it's a school chapel, was built by in the, the, the Gothic revivals. It's a Gothic building that rises to heaven. It's the fourth highest church in the whole of England. I think it's only Canterbury and York, and I've forgotten the other. Salisbury. Well, Salisbury. Now, Salisbury's got the highest spire. That's a good point, whoever said that. Um, but it's the, 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 uh, it's the highest or largest, anyway, but it's the fourth largest. I can't remember the, the fourth one is. Norwich. No, Norwich is a one. Norwich is very good. I love Norwich. I've lived there for many years. But no, it's, I've got one of knowledgeable audience I have here. No, not, the answer is no. Anyway, none of those. None of the above. Uh, as, 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 as intelligent answers as they are. But think about this. This is a high school. It's a high school. It's got the fourth largest uh, chapel, first like fourth largest ch church in, in England. I've been there, it's absolutely marvellous. But by the time war gets there, um, in the years uh, basically during World War I, uh, and just shortly after World War I, the school theology department had been taken over by modernists. So if you want to see parallels with Notre Dame, please feel free to do so. <laughs> but what War says is he lost his faith because of the religion he was taught at that school. He arrived there, as I want to say, a 12-year-old, as a devout, committed Anglo-Catholic who served on the altar. After receiving theology lessons from these non-believers, he basically calls them atheists. He said he wrote a paper once. And he said the paper he wrote was basically completely agnostic. And he got an A from the teacher with the comment, you are no mean theologian. In other words, you're a great theologian because you no longer believe in Christ. So, so basically, War loses his faith because of being taught at a school founded to teach Anglo-Catholicism to the people. He's actually losing faith. He said that over half of his uh, class uh, uh, mates there were also non-believers because of this religion class they got. And he became a militant atheist. He sort of lapsed from being a an Anglo-Catholic, to being an agnostic, to being a militant atheist. So by the time he was arrived at Oxford University, he was a militant atheist and ultra-hedonistic. He was a member of a notorious club called the Hypocrites Club. It's a, a drinking club which put most modern fraternities to shame, apparently. <laughs> um, one of the, I think the previous, he was elected as secretary of this society, and the previous secretary uh, left and was uh, died uh, shortly afterwards, or a few years afterwards, in um, suspicious circumstances on a Caribbean island uh, as, as a follower of Aleister Crowley. I know you've heard of Aleister Crowley, but the Satanist. I'm going to say Satanism. 
So war was really going downhill big time. And yet at the same time, this was all, all happening, this Catholic revival was happening in the culture. So he's influenced by this. He has a great love for the Pre-Raphaelites. This uh, neo-medieval movement in art from a century earlier, well, 70, 60, 70 years earlier. His first book is on Dante Gabriel Rossetti, one of the uh, pre-Raphaelite artists. So his love for this neo-medieval neo vision of art, which is, by the way, hated by the fashionable artists of his time. He loves uh, John Henry Newman's dream of Gerontius, the poet, and is influenced by his own early efforts of poetry. He's hugely influenced by Ronald, hugely influenced by Ronald Knox. Ronald Knox, we are getting, yes, indeed, Deacon Nathan Allen, who's here tonight, is going to give a talk on Ronald Knox later in the series. Ronald Knox is a convert from Anglicanism. He's the son of the, oh, I don't give too much away from the talk, really. <laughs> later talk. Son of the Bishop of Manchester, he becomes a Catholic priest. He becomes a Catholic priest. Um, but he preached and wrote with brilliant wit and satire against modernism, against the belief that the church should move with the world. As G.K. Chesterton said, we don't want a church that will move with the world, we want a church that will move the world. Ronald Knox basically was preaching that. He read uh, Knox as a child, as a teenager read some of Knox's early works. And then in 1924, when Knox was, uh, when was an undergraduate in Oxford, during his drunken hedonistic phase, during a sober moment, he went to listen to Ronald Knox speak. And Knox gave a, a defense of the Catholic Church and basically said that it's the only thing that can save Western civilization from, from self-destructing. And when War himself converts, about four, uh, six years later, the arguments that War uses for why he becomes a Catholic are very similar to this speech that Ronald Knox gave. Um, think, by the way, I, I'm, I'm an American citizen now, and um, that means that it's a, a duty of me, a patriotic duty, to stop every talk for at least one minute for a commercial break. <laughs> <laughs> So being a good patriotic American, this book, <laughs> which is on stand at the back there, with lots of other books, you should make a point of spending more than you can afford <laughs> before you leave. Temperance, by the way, is not a sin when you're buying my books. <laughs> there is prudence. Um, a virtue, I mean, virtue. Not a temperance is a virtue, not a sin. Um, this actually charts uh, the, 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 the Catholic revival here. And the, the thing about it is the, the, the interconnection of these various people influencing each other. There was someone said to me when I was researching this book that what was happening with this revival was a network of minds influencing each other. A network of minds and also a network of grace. That's one thing I hope comes out in this series, is that all these, these converts we're talking about were not islands. They were all influenced by or influencing each other. So we have the influence of the pre-Raphaelites, we have the influence of John Henry Newman, we have the influence of Ronald Knox. War was also hugely influenced by Hilaire Belloc, and particularly Hilaire Belloc's understanding of Europe being Catholic or being nothing. And you know, it's famous that Europe is the faith and the faith is Europe. That without 
the faith, without the Catholic faith, Europe is nothing. And, and that idea that Belloc preached in his writing was hugely influential on war, even in these dark days of his atheism and agnosticism. He always loved G.K. Chesterton and the works of G.K. Chesterton. And in 1925 or six, as Chesterton's out there, I think it's 1926, one of you will know. The Everlasting Man. No, The Everlasting Man is not 22. 25, 25 sounds right. Chesterton's conversion was 22. The Everlasting Man was in 25 or 26. 25, I'll accept 25. Any other, anything, anything other on 25? <laughs> So, War read that book when it first came out, and again, another major influence upon him. He'd been reading Chesterton before that also. He was also being hugely influenced by the Ditchling distributors. You know, Chesterton and Belloc were huge advocates of distributism, the political idea of distributism. And War, as a, as a schoolboy at, 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 uh, at Lansing, visited Ditchling and uh, learned the the, uh, the arts and crafts that were being done by the distributors there that were, again, most, many of them Catholic converts. <clears throat> he also befriended at Oxford uh, Catholics or those that, be, that were converted to Catholicism. He was horrified by the fact that some of his best friends, such as Christopher Hollis, were converted to Catholicism. And he had a friend called Harold Acton, who apparently was a real character, who was a, who was a, a cradle Catholic. And it was a really eccentric, and it's through Harold Acton's friendship with Harold Acton that, that War got to meet some of the major writers of the time, including the Sitwells, Edith Sitwell being another major uh, uh, convert to the Catholic faith. But Harold Acton, amongst other things, and his eccentricity, who he has read Bryce Head Revisited? Okay, quite a few. An educated crowd, love it. <laughs> Who here has seen the 1980s British TV adaptation of Bryce Ever Visited? Good. I'm not going to ask you what's the recent Hollywood one because you should be ashamed of yourselves. <laughs> in that one, by the way, the director of that one said, in his version, God is the enemy. So talking about turning the, literally turning War's book inside out, infernally. Um, but you remember, if you read Rise of the Visited, the wonderful evocative scene of Anthony Blanche, Antoine Blanche, the effeminate chap, um, who recites T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland through a megaphone to the, to the men going down to row uh, on the ISIS, on the Thames. Well, Howard Acton did it for real. There was a meeting of the League of Nations, another some sort of political club, and Howard Acton, you know, from balcony, recited the wasteland to them from megaphones. So that, as in many things in Bryce said, there's lots of autobiographical stuff. But Howard Acton, again, practicing Catholic, huge influence. Even in war's darkest time, he was surrounded by these Catholic influences. Not least of which was T.S. Eliot himself. Now in 1928, War publishes a novel called Decline and Fall, which is very um, autobiographical. Um, it really depicts well, de decline and fall. As a man's basically uh, getting involved in a downward vortex of hedonism and cynicism and disbelief until he becomes suicidal. 
And he becomes a bestseller, and he becomes known as the ultra-modern novelist, doing new things in satire, the way he writes. So the gossip columns now call him the ultra-modern novelist, and he's in great demand. He's contracted to write a book called Viral Bodies by his publishers, a follow-up. Around the time that Decline and Fall is published, uh, T.S. Eliot converts to Catholicism. And Eliot describes himself, when he converted, as being um, a Catholic, a royalist, and a classicist. Um, a sort of, if you like, reactionary version of Catholicism. Uh, championed by Jean Moraz in France, a reaction against the French Revolution and that sort of uh, uh, secular uh, uh, secular fundamentalism in government basically to the guillotine, who would lead in the 20th century to the gas chamber and the de Gouleg archipelago. So T.S. Eliot converts in 1928, hugely influential, sends shockwaves through the establishment because Eliot was the ultra-modern poet. He'd thrown out all the rules. He was an anarchist. And this is the way that the, that the anarchists wanted to see him. They believed that he was. They misread The Wasteland. I've taught The Wasteland many years. It's one of my favorite poems. A profoundly Catholic poem, even though it's written six years before uh, Eliot uh, formally converts. Because, by the way, he was influenced by Jean Moraz uh, when he was in Paris uh, before the First World War, or at the start of the First World War. Um, and Jean Moraz, with that, those very same words in French, um, Catholic, uh, monarchique, classiciste, that was his slogan 15 years later. Lady uh, uses the same slogan when he becomes a Catholic. So he, the Wasteland is written right in the middle of that period, right? So war always. <laughs> Eliot already had these opinions. It's been playing itself out in the wasteland, hugely influential poem. But everyone's shocked when he converts because he's a he's a modern. Moderns don't become Catholic. Now, the Catholic Church is ancient. It's old. It's old-fashioned. Those who are up to date and modern just don't do that. So in T.S. Eliot, the most influential poet of the 20th century, hugely popular because he's modern, announces Catholicism, it's hard for us to really understand now how shocking that was. And Virginia Woolf said, and she was a friend of Eliot's, she wrote to a friend, Dear Tom Eliot has become a Catholic believer in God. There's something obscene in this day and age in someone sitting by the fire and believing in God. To which I can't resist the temptation to reply, it's better than sitting in the fire by not believing in God. <laughs> as my wife might say, you're not getting to heaven as long as you find that funny. <laughs> There's hope for all of us though. So two years later, 1930, the, the ultra-modern poet having converted, the ultra-modern novelist converts. 
Evening Wars received in the church in 1913. It's so shocking that the Daily Express, one of the major newspapers in England, one of the biggest selling newspapers in England, has a full-page lead article on it. And it's the major headline for the day. No, the ultra-modern novelist becomes a Catholic. And the next day, it's also a major article from They're continuing with it. It's caused such a controversy that, that um, three weeks later, War himself writes a four-page article in the Daily Express with the headline, Roman Catholicism, Why It Has Happened to Me, as if he'd caught some disease. <laughs> it's evening war sense of humour. And in that, he basically says that the Catholic Church is the only hope for civilization. Now, he said, by civilization, I don't mean talking cinemas and tinned food or even hygienic houses. He means that the whole fabric of the moral compass of Western civilization that's accumulated in the works and wisdom of what we are. And this was so shocking, the following day there was a Protestant member of Parliament wrote an article attacking him for becoming a Catholic. And the following day there was another full-page article by a Jesuit defending him for becoming a Catholic. <laughs> with the headline, Is England Turning to Rome? And three days after that there was a whole page of letters in the Daily Express on the subject, for and against. Now, it's a backdrop to this as well. Around the time that war begins to take Catholicism seriously and, and sees um, so to see Father Martin Darcy, the Jesuit, for instruction, he's writing a book called Vile Bodies, it would be published as Vile Bodies. And basically it's about the bright young people, the young people of today. And it's showing their vacuous lives how empty it is, and how they don't have to worry about money, they're all rich, of course, but their lives are empty, and the big thing they're fighting against all the time, all the time is boredom. There's no meaning in their lives. War, at about the time he started writing that novel, married a woman whose name was Evelyn. I don't know what the odds are on you know, an Evelyn marrying an Evelyn, but it happened. <laughs> So they became known as He Evelyn and She Evelyn, or He Evelyn and She Evelyn. <laughs> it was a disastrous marriage, disastrous marriage. And basically, while war went off to the countryside to write this novel, Vile Bodies, uh, his wife started conducting a, a, an affair with his best friend. War was absolutely mortified and struck. Uh, by it, struck down by it. And that was, again, the other thing we have to remember in conversions, always, we can, you know, I for many, many years thought about my own conversion as being completely rational. I reasoned my way, under grace, I reasoned my way, way, way to conversion, reading Chesterton and Newman and Thomas Aquinas, etc., etc. But suddenly when you look back on it, you realize, well, that was part of it. But there was also a healing going on, and also the real mess you're making of your life. There were horrible things that you were doing and that were being done to you, and the way you were messing your children's lives up because of your selfishness. 
That was the last part of it too. Disgust at that. Well, same thing here. Wars, all wars, idyllic notions of marriage and womanhood were dragged through the gutter by this experience with very, very deep psychological ramifications. And if you actually read Vile Bodies, it's interesting because you, I think you can, one of the good games you can play is to find the join. Because it's halfway through reading it when this debacle happens, when his wife leaves him for his best friend, and he can't write anything for months. And then he takes it up again to finish it. So there's a join. And you can spot the join because the early part of the, 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 the uh, book is just sort of making fun of the vacuity, the emptiness of modernity, of modern life. But the second part of it is darker and deeper. And there's a Father Rothschild, a Jesuit, quite clearly based on Father Martin Darcy, who's the voice of sanity and sanctity amidst the madness. In 1934, Moore wrote a novel called A Handful of Dust, which is probably my favourite novel of wars after Brightside Revisited. <coughs> and the, the, the novel A Handful of Dust actually takes its... Well, does anyone know? You're so intelligent. Handful of Dust, where does it come from? Where does war get the source for that novel title? Genesis. No, Genesis, no. Uh, of course. But uh, he actually gives the epigraph, he quotes from the poem that he's, he's taking it from, so not Genesis. But of course. No. The, wasteland. the Wasteland. Thank you very much. The Wasteland. In The Wasteland, there's a line, I will show you fear in a handful of dust. And it's memento mori, a reminder of death. And in Christian art and Christian literature, the memento mori, the reminder of death, always points to the four last things. Death, judgment, heaven, and hell. That's what the wasteland does. And that's what Evening Wars novel A Handful of Dust does. I need to uh, make sure I get the whole thing covered in the 45 minutes to leave time for Q&A. So I'm trying to move things along here. Um, the Spanish Civil War, Evening War, I love it, Evening War, because in the Spanish Civil War in England, I don't know if you know anything about the Spanish Civil War, but basically the, the communist forces, the republican forces, were burning churches, raping nuns, killing priests, killing bishops. And yet the entire population of England supported them. It was only the Catholics who didn't. And anyone who didn't support them was called a fascist. Because, of course, uh, Franco was on the other side, and there were fascists fighting, and they, were the, they had the, the Nazi government supporting the nationalist side, but the communist government in Russia was supporting the republican side, but that was okay. So this, this, um, so war was brilliant here. War said, when asked, there was, there, was a, there was a petition that went out, organized by communists, communist writers, to all other writers asking where they stand on the war in Spain. And of course, everyone comes down the side of the communists. Only at two or three 
come down on the other side. Warlord just says, I am not in the position of having to choose between two evils. And I love that. I also think that this day and age, by the way, how things are always pertinent. What do we choose? The hedonism and culture of death that we find ourselves in of radical Islam. What we choose is what uh, you have the choice from Romeo and Juliet between um, the idiocy of the Capulets and the idiocy of the Montagues. You take the Mercutio option. Mercutio says, a plague on both your houses. War was wise. Bryce had revisited. We've got enough time for five minutes on Bryce had revisited. In my judgment, for what that's worth, it's the greatest novel of the 20th century. I don't consider The Lord of the Rings to be a novel. So, let me put that to one side. Um, but Bryce had visited. It's, it's one of those novels that it, it's almost word perfect. In the sense that, you know, if you read a novel by Chesterton, God bless him, there's all sorts of slack sort of stuff, formless. He, he called his own novels formless, so I'm not being uh, outrageous here. You know, Chesterton was Chesterton's slapdash. He threw something down quickly, as we did. He was a journalist. He never spent more than a few hours on anything, maybe a few days on a novel. <laughs> yeah, that was the way he worked. That was what he was. If you look at his art, he was a caricaturist. Everything's very quick. And the reason you read Chesterton is because you're, you're, you're in the presence of someone working quickly who's a genius. It's a roller coaster in the presence of genius. Of course you want to ride that roller coaster. Why would you not want to do that? But it's ramshackle because it's not structured. There's not a, a single word in Bryce that we visited. It's not exactly where it should be. And I've, and I've read it many times, I've taught it many times, and I can't find one unnecessary sentence. You know, quite a few have read it, but I'll say just a few things on it. What I love about it is the narrator is Charles Ryder, he's us, perhaps not us as Catholics, but he's us as secular, the secular reader. He's also even more as the pre-convert evening war. Now War says at the beginning of the book, uh, before the novel starts in, uh, in one of his introductory comments, um, none of this should be taken autobiographically, but of course no novel, a novel has to take from someone's experience. And for instance, Charles Ryder's childhood, where he loses his faith because of modernist theologians at his high school, bears remarkable similarities to even War's own experience. So we see this uh, secularized pre-conversion war in Charles Ryder. But the rest of the main characters are all members of this Catholic family. And none of them are perfect. In fact, they're all flawed. And that's the beauty of it. You, know, you, you have you have Bridie, who understands the faith back to front, but is inept socially, and perhaps knows the rules too much, and has too much of the head, not enough of the heart. Then you have Julia um, and Sebastian, who just want to have fun, and in consequence, make a complete mess of their lives. You have Cordelia, who's aptly named, like Shakespeare's Cordelia. The Holy One. And actually, I think it's deliberate, uh, the, the collection of the names. I mean, who's the other famous Cordelia? Shakespeare's. I mean, first of all, it's obvious. But when did we first see Cordelia in the novel? Well, if you remember, 
she surprises Charles and Sebastian of sunbathing on the roof of Brazed naked. All right, what's Lear famous for? King Lear strips naked. The sinner is naked, Cordelia is the virtuous one. Um, you have Bride, uh, Lord Brideshead, who deserts his wife and children, goes off and lives with a concubine. Um, and then you have his conversion. And I have taught Brideshead many, many times. I've never yet managed to read that passage in front of a class without my voice breaking. It's one of the most beautiful passages in literature, uh, Brideshead's uh, conversion. Uh, Lord Marshmaid's conversion, I should say. Lord Marshmaid's conversion. But what? notice, how does one do this? The key moment when he dies, the practicing Catholics are not there. Bridie's away from home. Cordelia's away from home. It's only Julia, the miserable sinner, who's been uh, carrying on an adulterous relationship with Charles, who's there. So it's the miserable sinner who calls the priest. It's the miserable sinner who kneels at the foot of the bed. It's the miserable sinner who at the end tells Charles that they can't have that sort of happiness. That there's something deeper. And I take to my students, in fact I set them a paper topic sometimes. Bryce had revisited. A happy ending? Question mark. That's the prompt. Because when it tests, it really tests, and this is, this is a Lenten talk here, what's important? Worldly happiness or eternal joy? Well, first of all, of course, worldly happiness normally proves to be illusory. The more we pursue it, the less we find it. And the whole rest of Bryce says about that. You know, the, the, more the, the more the characters are trying to pursue worldly pleasure, the less they discover it. So first of all, it's elusive and illusory. And if Charles, if Charles uh, and Julia had got married, would they have lived happily ever after? Probably not. Or do we accept um, suffering? Do we embrace the cross, as Lady Marshmaid does throughout the novel? Anyway, I could say much more, running out of time here. Well, just the last few moments where I talk about the, the final years of War's life. Make sure we have time for questions. War died in 1966. So he saw the Second Vatican Council and he saw the changes in the liturgy. And he was not happy with them at all and he was involved in um, a lengthy correspondence with Cardinal Heenan, the Cardinal Archbishop of Westminster, um, about the banality of what was happening in the liturgy at the time, the abandonment of Latin, the abandonment of Ad Orientum, etc. Conahina was initially sympathetic, but then, should we say, fell in line. War died, having said that we're living in dark times for the church. It's not going to be put right in our time. He didn't live to see 
Pope Benedict's motto proprio. And the fruits of it we see in this parish and the parish that I go to, just uh, um, diocesan parishes that are now open to the extraordinary form of the Mass. You didn't see, you saw the death where he thought, where he, I don't know if he thought it, but what would have been seen perhaps as the death of the old Mass. He didn't live to see its resurrection. And I want to just finish with War's death, because it's beautiful. Evening War was very, very unhappy with the, the new liturgy. So Easter Sunday, he managed to get permission, and you had to get special permission, to have a traditional Mass said. And a priest came and said in a small chapel in a small village not far from where he lived. He went to confession. He'd been praying for death. His family tell us that. And then after Mass, comes back to his house, the happiest anyone's seen him for ages. And he collapses and dies on Easter Sunday, having been to confession, having been and received communion. Now, Evening War was not Irish. <laughs> and therefore not a saint in that sense I mean you know he was prone to gossip he, the, the people say he wasn't the nicest of people uh, he was a miserable sinner but if in Lent we need some indication of how much God loves miserable sinners and how much God's mercy is shown to miserable sinners just look at what he showed to Evening War on Easter Sunday, 1966. Thank you very much. Uh, we have a few minutes for Q&A. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have a second, mic second microphone, so you will just have to stand up and Shout. speak uh, clearly. If anyone would like to donate to the second microphone fund, there is a basket in the back there. Um, but in the meantime, we'll take we'll take a second mic. Second. Oh, oh better. So you can still donate. Oh, yeah, you can still donate. Another hands-free microphone. Thank you. Uh, you said a uh, very interesting thing about his early life and his attachment to the rituals of English Catholicism. And then you also made the point of how his conversion was essentially a rational one. And I think in your book you talk about the surprising lack of emotion that he showed at the time of his conversion. And then you talk about his despondency over the liturgical changes. Do you think his attachment to the old rite was primarily a matter of the heart, or were there intellectual and rational reasons for his love of the old liturgy? Excellent question. Uh, you know, was uh, an excellent preamble. I don't know if anyone, everyone heard the preamble as well. But, but basically, um, was War's opposition to the old right purely rational, or was there emotional and other aspects involved? Was that, um, I, I think both. Um, I do think that he saw the Catholic Church as the only bastion and rock against the uh, madness of modernity and the culture of death, 
Um, and I think he saw that the change in the liturgy was a, was a surrender was a surrender to the uh, spirit of the age. He called it our own deplorable epoch. That's how he described the spirit of the age. He saw that the church was surrendering to our own deplorable epoch. So there was that, uh, you might call that emotional, but I don't think that's divorced from uh, the reason. But in his uh, dialectic, in his uh, uh, letters to Cardinal Heenan and his letters to the press and his replies to other Catholics, it's quite clear he understands um, the church's teaching on the liturgy uh, and the importance, for instance, that part active participation in the liturgy can be silent. You know, it's a wonderful thing he says that, you know, it's not about, not about whether we hear ourselves, but about whether God hears us. You know, uh, so the, so I, I think he, he clearly understood you know, what uh, Pope Benedict would uh, would write about in the spirit of the liturgy. He clearly understood that sort of understanding of liturgy. So I think it was rational, but I do think it was still so deeply. I think the two. I don't think necessarily the things should be separated. But I would even say, uh, to try to try to summarise this, that the Catholic Church has always united the head and the heart that um, what happened with uh, the Reformation and the late Renaissance and humanism was the separation of the head from the heart. And then when you have, once that happens, you have in the Enlightenment, you have the worship of the head and, and the rejection of the heart. And then with Romanticism, you have the worship of the heart and the rejection of the head. The Church has always kept fides and ratio in harmony. And what we see today, by the way, is that you know, the whole thing slipped from the head and the heart to the loins. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Can you talk a little bit about some of his other uh, post-conversion works in, in your ranking of them or views on them? Well, yeah, I mean, I would say first of all that I haven't, as with some other writers, made a systematic study of all of his works, so I wouldn't call myself an expert. I've read them recreationally and not you know, with a view to study. Um, I mean, I love his book on Edmund Campion because I have a great devotion to the, uh, to the English martyrs for obvious reasons. Even the English can be saints. And sort of on a trilogy, I love. But I think that the, the problem is sort of on a trilogy. If you see the other thing, if you ask what, what was War's masterpiece, you know, I don't know if you kept calling them Wavians, as in Shavians, as in Shaw, I don't know, but people that follow War, but people that like War, but normally argue whether it's Bridesmaid or whether it's the sort of on a trilogy. But, I come down solidly on the side of Bridesmaid for one of the reasons I gave in my talk. In Bridesmaid, there's not a word out of place, there's not a sentence out of place. I think that War did not allow himself to be edited at all for sort of one of the trilogy, and I think it's 20 or 30% too big. I mean, there's lots of characters that are introduced that don't do anything, don't go anywhere, they disappear without trace, not adding anything to the plot. I mean, at best, they're amusing, some of them. You know, so uh, I, th I, th I think it's a significant work of literature, but it's not as good as Bride said. So there, I mean, the, the, the works after his conversion that spring to mind that I have some view on. Okay. You uh, talked about the uh, handful of dust. Um, Waugh wrote two endings, one that was published in the novel and one that was published as a short story called, uh, uh, was by popular demand. What, What's your assessment of those two different endings, and which do you like better? 
<laughs> you, 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 Deacon Nathan, you flatter me. <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm aware of the two endings. I don't think I've even read the alternative one, so I can't, I can't pass a comment. But, uh, but thank you for the compliment. <laughs> Any other questions that I can't answer? <laughs> All right. Yes. What is the reason um, Evelyn became Catholic? Was it a personal reason, or because culture was a problem? Uh, both. I, I, I think I think that he saw modernity as being a complete mess. He saw what his role in modernity as making a mess of him and everybody he knew and everybody around him. But he also saw and read writers such as Newman and Chesterton and Belloc um, and Ronald Knox. Um, and uh, realized that rationally the church had the answer. Um, I mean, Chesterton said that the Catholic Church is the one institution that's been thinking about thinking for 2,000 years. You know, War was aware of that, and he realized if, we, if we're in a mess today, it's because we're not listening to the institution that's been thinking about thinking for 2,000 years. All right, thank you very much.